Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. Everybody, welcome to the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. This week, we're not talking about one particular album. We're actually talking with somebody who's produced a number of albums we've already discussed and some that we are planning to discuss. Welcome uh, from the UK, Andre Jackman. I said I did it with the soft J. Let me try it again. <laughs> Andre Jackman. Thank you for that's, being here. That's good. Um, it's a pleasure. Um, so how far back does your history with Monty Python go? We'll start there. Um, it was around um, 1971-ish, something like that. So okay. It's, it's, okay. It's well over 40 years. Um, let's see, because uh, that's this is the problem with uh, you know doing my research is that if if you look up you know comedy albums, you actually you're in a lot of trouble trying to find who did what, and if there's a credit on there, you're not entirely sure what they were responsible for. Even if you know that they're the producer, you're you're kind of uh, woefully misinformed, and it's a real problem for me, which is why I you know I have their discography pulled up. And I can tell you what's on a lot of these records, but if I if I pull them, uh, it might not have your name on it. It might not be you might might not be properly credited because I can, there's an IMDb, but there's nothing good enough for for audio production. But so you you started out in a band. Let's let's I mean let's go back that far. Let's go back to when you first started doing uh, production. Um, well, it was a obviously a long time ago. I. Um... I worked in a studio as a, a, a T-boy. I, I saw a little ad in a recording studio up in Wardour Street, which is in Soho, and um, I thought, wow, this will give me a chance to get my band recorded, and uh, I applied for the job. I managed to get the job, and in fact, I had a great uh, great interview with a chap called Bob Court, um, who used to be a quite a well-known skiffle guy in the, in the 50s, who, okay. is now, who he was managing the studio at the time. And uh, the one he said one thing to me, which was kind of um, really got my sort of interest in um, wanting to keep the job. And he said, "Look, we've had five people in six months here, and I suppose you'll not be any better than that." And that really kind of caught to me. And I thought, "Right, well, I'll show him that I am better than that." And in fact, um, I tried really, really hard to uh, absorb what was going on in the studio, get short. Sure make sure that all my duties were correct and that kind of stuff. So um, I managed to stay there and um, I was under uh, training under a guy called Alan Bailey who just left Radio Luxembourg and he um, took a bit of time to sort of show me the ropes as it were and I kind of listened and looked at what he was doing and then when he went home I started to... um, replicate what he was doing during the day i suppose that's a perfect way to do it as a as somebody who's sort of apprenticing uh in that kind of work and i'm, I'm what's i guess what's curious to me is it, the first thought i'm going to have as a as a lover of comedy is while i might be able to sort of understand somebody who learns how to mix levels somebody who learns how to make somebody something sound perfect what is your first exposure to actually making comedy or hearing or seeing comedy get made that gets you involved in in doing audio comedy? Um, it was, uh, um, going back to the Ellen Bailey thing, was that I actually worked in a studio that was commercial stroke music. They did everything. So I learned about voice recording primarily. 
initially. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then I developed into um, doing music because obviously uh, with my band and stuff, and we had a few music acts and doing jingles and that kind of stuff. So I, I got to learn the process about that, and um, I kind of enjoyed everything really. Um, but uh, the first thing I kind of went into uh, was actually recording voice, and that kind of got me sort of interested into um, um, voice. Um, Voice quality, so that was that was a that was um that was a good thing for me. It was a good um, kind of background because um, voice really covers quite a wide range, as you can imagine. You know, especially when you're doing vocals and that kind of stuff. That makes sense. Is is there when it comes to uh, is there one quality you can think of when something you think about much more when you're recording and mixing voice in than with just music where you've got so many different you've got instruments and voice to deal with. I mean, is there is there something that I might not think of instinctively when you're when you're cutting or 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 mixing voice? Well, no, they're pretty much uh, um, pretty much the same. Uh, the interesting thing about sort of um, uh, voices really is and doing commercials is that you know you have your 30 second slots and you have to kind of get your um, uh, your your dialogue in you've got to get your uh, verse your chorus all within 30 seconds so I learned to be very efficient and document um, uh, things which is really really important if you're doing quite a lot of takes on something uh, it's actually keeping um, a good management on that kind of stuff Okay, that makes sense. Um, you, now, if I'm, I'm looking, if, if I pull up uh, the Monty Python discography, at least according to Discogs.com, um, so their first one is, of course, the one that was pulled, I think, almost exclusively just from uh, episodes, just Monty Python's Flying Circus. That's that one. And then we've got another Monty Python. Three, wait, three, four albums? No, three albums, I guess, in the first, uh, in 1970 alone, apparently, which kind of is crazy. And then we move on. If if you you said you started being involved in 1971, so do you know what's the okay? So no, they did another release of previous record, several releases of previous record. So and then previous cassette. Oh my goodness, there's so many different versions of just previous record that it's it's this list is is incredibly long. Um, oh, <laughs> let, let me take you let, let, let me take you back. Yeah. Uh, my um, uh, kind of introduction to comedy was when I was growing up and I would listen to Tony Hancock and uh, the radio shows and of course the goons they were kind of really quite special to me so I kind of got interested in comedy um, at that early point when I was at the studio um, I was there probably about um, I should think about a, a year or, or maybe about eight or nine months somewhere around that time and um, that's when I first met Michael Palin and Michael came, uh, I, I was just going out to lunch, I was dashing down the stairs and then uh, the door opens and then this guy walks in and starts walking up the stairs and I was looking after the reception during the lunch period so I dashed back upstairs, go behind the counter and it's a bit like a Python sketch really and I said, oh can I help you sir? And he said, oh yeah I want to do a demo tape for a friend of mine um, you do voice recording here, don't you? And uh, I said, yes, yeah, certainly. So I looked in the diary, and I uh, Mike said, Mike gave me a time. So I looked in the diary, and uh, the other engineer, Alan, was busy that day, and this was the only time that Mike could make. So I booked him in with me, and um, we then started doing the uh, voice tapes, 
And it must have taken about a year to do this uh, tape. And I just thought, wow, this is kind of, um, why is it taking so long? But in between all of that, it gave me a good chance to edit the dialogue that, uh, from his friend and add music and sound effects and that kind of stuff, stuff that you normally do for commercials. Um, and um, I didn't know at this time who Mike was. Uh, but at the end of it, Mike said to me, he said, Andre, you've done such a fantastic job. He said, look, I'm putting an album together fairly soon. Would you be interested in uh, helping out? And I said, yeah, fine, okay. Uh, let me know. You know where I am. Uh, um, you've got the phone number here. Uh, just give me a call when you're ready. And then um, about three weeks later, I was offered a job in a Wild West show, a touring Wild World touring Wild West show and I was doing some stuff for them and they said oh Andre you know you're great can you um come on the road with us and and, and do our sound and uh I thought well yeah that that sounds really exciting but the same week uh, Mike rang up and said look we're having a meeting about uh, uh this album that we want to do uh could you come along so he gave me the address and all of that so I didn't give the uh uh, other people, the Wild West show people, were uh, a call just to see what uh, what was going on. And I kind of wondered at the time, and I thought, well, what does anybody want to do a talking record for? <laughs> Which is kind of a bit, a bit odd. But um, anyhow, I, I went down and um, uh, I went to Mike's house and um, went in. And all the Pythons were there uh, apart from John Cleese. Anyway, the, um, knock on the door, John Cleese walks in. And then the penny dropped as to who the, all these guys were, because I was so busy during during the uh, my my kind of um, working life at the studio that I never really had time to watch uh, television. So I was always fiddling about in the studio. And um, when uh, when John walked in, I thought because everybody at the time kind of whenever there was a, a sort of um, a Python. Um, show or whatever it was always John Cleese that they had a, had a picture of so that's how I kind of knew um, who these guys were and, and then I, I, I kind of said to myself oh shit I'm in big trouble here you know I'm like 17 years old Mike's asked me to come along um, to help on this project and these are all Oxford and Cambridge guys you know and, and for me it was like I've just all I've got is a bicycle certificate and a hundred meter swimming certificate and that, that that was it and I kind of felt a little bit out of my depth anyway so I played along and then um, Mike showed me this whole pile of scripts which must have been about um, two foot high and um, he said well look that's what we need to record Andre do you want to just have a look at that and um, just tell us you know where when and, and what you want us to do so uh, that was kind of a big thing anyway left it at that and then I, I kind of went through all the, the, the stuff that we had to do and everything. And then um, I thought, well, this is obviously quite a major project. And I, th I thought, if I'm going to do this, then I should get my friend Alan Bailey, who, um, who, was, who, who had taught me. Uh, but I knew I'd be in safe hands to make sure that everything runs smoothly. And by this time, Alan had left to go back to Radio Luxembourg. And um, uh, we booked in the first Python album to record in uh, in Radio Luxembourg, which is in um, Hartford Street in Mayfair, because they would do all the the, the, the shows um, and uh, the promos and stuff, uh, and the band recordings was all done in Hartford Street. So um, that's kind of how that one happened, really. And um, there was always one kind of Python assigned to um, a particular project. And the first one happened to be Mike 
Uh, so Mike and me basically put that together. Alan had recorded uh, all the voices, and then I would um, take the stuff away. And Alan would do a bit of work on it, put some effects in and stuff, and I would add, add a few more effects. And then um, we'd, we'd kind of like do a co um, co production on the on, on the stuff, and then. Um, we would just then play it back to all the Pythons and stuff, and then um, make sure that they're all happy with it. That's, so that's, that's my, you know, that's my first introduction to that. And I think that was Monty Python's previous album. It was called. That's the one with the long hand. It looks like a snake going around the cover. There we go. Okay, that <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, and that's the one that that it, apparently I clicked on it, and it just opened every possible version of that that's ever been released, which is why it was so. It's like, how is that physically possible? That's oh my goodness, like just. Just the idea. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm now also uh, I hadn't done the math at first. So you're you're more than a decade younger than these guys. You're 17 when you're starting on this, and but so busy and so good at what you do. I assume, like you say, you're so distracted that you didn't have time to watch TV. So you have no you have no idea necessarily who these guys are. Um, not unclean. No, not at all. <laughs> that's so amazing. Like, and that's you know, and I, I you you couldn't have been the only one. However, it it is. I that might have helped you. Uh, I I would. I mean, did you go out? Did you watch the shows to get an idea of what their their humor was like at that point? Or I mean, it's not like you could just grab them. You had to watch them if they were on. Um, no, not at all. I didn't. Um, no, I, I wasn't really interested, really. And uh, as I said, I mean, I was quite quite surprised. And I always wondered when we we're doing uh, Matt Palin's friends demo uh, showreel. I I kind of was always wondering, well, you know, why is Mike always um, so busy, uh, and he could only make certain dates. And of course, they were out filming the first TV series at the time, so um, he was uh, unavailable uh, quite a bit of that time. And it was something that um, kind of, I guess, helped in a way that I wasn't phased by it. As I said, the only time I was phased was when I realised who they were um, and how clever they were. But basically, you know, when you're doing comedy um you know it's, it's comedy is quite a serious business really you know and uh, um you have to actually um kind of just do it for real if you know what i mean do it seriously you know um but obviously it's, it's a lot of fun recording the stuff but uh, but we did treat it quite uh, quite seriously and at the time um what had happened was that um and partly the reason they brought me in was that um, Terry Jones had done the first album and uh, they recorded it at an independent studio called the Marquee Studios. And um, that was um, a big job for Terry because obviously in between filming and everything, um, uh, time was a bit limited. Uh, but um, Terry said that um, he thought the engineer was writing notes down about take marks and the best takes and stuff, and the engineer thought Terry was writing. Oh, uh, no. oh. down. So they ended up with about 70 quarter-inch reels of tape at the end, and <laughs> Terry then had to go through the whole lot again. So they had this massive bill at the end of it uh, for studio time, and uh, it cost them an absolute fortune. Of course, I come along, and, you know, I have the scripts, I mark the take numbers down, what the best bits are, use this take for this line, use that take for that line. And and um, I was pretty much more organized. And, of course, that relieved um, the pressure because all the other guys realized what, what a big pressure that was. And they, they, they I think they just realized that to have somebody who knows what they're doing um, at putting this stuff together um, was a great advantage. Plus, 
hence saving them a huge amount of money. I think for the previous album, I think I got uh, £200. So what's that? What, $300 or something? <laughs> oh, my God. But the other thing, too, is that they're they're trusting in, uh, you know, I'm not one that underestimates somebody just because of, of age, but to trust somebody that, I mean, they know, for, at least Michael knew you from, from doing the, the demo for over a year, so he knows that you know what you're doing. But to trust you to also know what the best takes in terms of humor, that's, I mean, that's a lot to lay on your shoulders or on your lap. Did did you feel that, or you're just like, no, this is just part of my job? Uh, no, I think I, I thought it was part of my job. And you know what's good and what, what what's bad. You have to have a sort of certain common sense, which doesn't seem to be applicable these days I think, <laughs> with, a lot, with a lot of people but um no it was it, it was just natural it, it it was very natural to me to find out what was um funny and what what wasn't funny and invariably we would say oh use that take or use this take or one of the boys would say oh uh, that that was a better take can we use that so i would intercut between my ideas and their ideas and then we would kind of like get something which um established um uh, a good a good performance do you uh, uh, i guess it, if, if we start on it, let's talk about previous record a, a little are there any bits that stand out that you helped that, that you put together is there any or do they kind of blend together for you yeah they all kind of blend uh, blend together i mean it was a great album and it was a good introduction to uh uh to python um i think that uh the well it, it just seemed to go very well and I knew I, I was in safe hands with um, Alan Bailey anyway so um, if anything was untoward or, or was going to be proved difficult Alan uh, was so seasoned at what he was doing and he's such a brilliant engineer that um, I, I felt that it, it, we, we, were, we were terribly safe you know did you um, let's see you know, this this happens at least once an episode. My brain just t decides to shut down because I've got so many questions to ask. Um, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> da, 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 da. So if we're talking about previous record. Da, 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 da. You know, I had some notes here. Let me see what I did with them. Uh, While you're looking, um, I'll explain that um, during the cut of the uh, previous album, we, we went to uh, Apple Studios, you know, the Beatles studio, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we were cutting the album. And then uh, Mike, uh, I was talking to a friend on the phone while we were uh, were waiting, and uh, um, I said to my friend, I said, oh, it would be great, should we, should we just build our own studio and do our own, own stuff? Because he was in my band and everything, and uh, his name's Dave Hellman, who is my kind of co-writer these days and um well always been uh, actually and uh we um i was talking to him on the phone and uh we decided that it'd be great to have our own studio anyway when, when i hung up mike said to me he said look andre uh, forgive me but i couldn't um mind overhearing you saying that you want to have your own studio he said look come down uh, for dinner one night and um, I'd like to have a chat to you about it. So um, I went down uh, to Mike's um, a couple of weeks later and um, Mike said, look, I'd be interested in coming in with you. He said, what would you, um, what, what, what do you need? And I said, well, I've been saving money up for quite, quite some time with my band work and uh, um, um, to actually make sure that I can actually um, afford equipment but I'm short of about a thousand pounds to get the final stuff 
So he, he immediately got his checkbook out, gave me a thousand pounds, and I said, "But Mike, I said you hardly know me. I mean, we've, we've done your demo tape, we've done this album, but you know, you're trusting me with a thousand pounds. I can have a great Caribbean holiday with this." <laughs> and he said, "No, no, no, Andre." He said, "I trust you implicitly." He said, and uh, he said, "Just use it well, and then just pay me back when uh, when you uh, when you can." So um, I went away and we uh, set the studio up. My um, my father had just finished uh, a nice little uh, greenhouse stroke garden shed in the garden. And then I said to him, uh, is it possible I could build a recording studio in there? And um, unbelievably, he said, yeah, okay, fine. And so that's how we ended up with the garden shed recording studio. And so I went out and bought all the equipment that we needed. And hence, um, we did... Um, Matching town hanky in there, would you believe? At oh first, goodness. in a garden shed. <laughs> That's amazing. That 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 is one of those. That that is not what I expected at all. I mean, the idea that there this that album, which by the way, like I, I've done this podcast for almost five years now, and what our was it our I think it was our second live episode. Um, two particular guests happened to separately express an interest in talking about that album and somehow it had escaped me much as i grew up with particular monty python albums i had grown up more on the shows and on the movies so to have that one uh kind of exposed to me like so late in life i was like i have really missed out uh and you would never guess again that like i said that it was it, it's a testament to your work and to their work but that that it was recorded in a garden shed, that is just that. That's a little mind blowing. Yeah, it was. It was a great time actually, and and we had a fantastic time. And uh, Terry Gilliam helped me out with that album, and uh, um, he he lived in in um, West Hampstead at, at the time, and then uh, he would come down and uh, we'd work through it together, and uh, it was fantastic, you know. And uh, um, no, we had a good time. Sometimes if I was out, you know, he'd actually go. We had a side entrance, a little. Very small, um, tiny walk in alleyway next to our our semi-detached house, and uh, we, uh, there was a big uh, sort of wooden door there. So invariably, he would climb over the door if it was locked. <laughs> and I kind of think of it today, and think, "Oh my God, Terry Gilliam climbing up my my uh, garden wall thing to get in," you know. And it was quite bizarre, really. Uh, but it was great, and uh, you know, my mum would make them cakes and stuff. And I think there's a reference on one of the albums about. My mum's cakes and stuff, so um, she would bring cakes out for the boys, and and it was fantastic. It was a, it was a really good time. But the, the advantage of that um, was that we had everything on tap. You know, we want if you wanted to do foley for sound effects, uh, we, we we had concrete floor just outside the door. We had a garden, small garden pond for water effects. We had a garden gate, and you just stick a mic outside, and then you, you you'd have everything. You had the whole world of sound effects right right at your feet, which was fantastic. William, there were great times. We had a good time there. Wow. This is, I'm sorry. Like, there's just so much to ask you about now. Uh, but uh, the first thing I want to ask then is, like, uh, if we just go back to just starting out with them at all, is uh, you you got to pick the best takes. And I, what you said makes perfect sense. Yeah, Common sense, at least especially if you understand comedy, means you, you're going to know a good take when you hear one. But then when you're cutting – was some of the timing or a lot of the timing left up to you as well? Because that's that's a huge thing to just, as a comedian and as obs and as obsessive as I am, I wouldn't leave it in anybody else's hands. So the trust to have in somebody. So did, did you cut, was it, was a, I just should just go back to my original question. Was a lot of the timing left up to you? 
Uh, yeah, pretty much so. Uh, I mean, it, it was built within in in the reeds, of course. Um, but sometimes I would nudge a bit earlier or, or a little bit later. And um, again, it was just common sense to to, to have a common feel. I think all those years of listening to the Goons and Tony Hancock, you kind of got a good feel for for comedy. Um, uh, so again, it was quite natural to me at, at the time to. Uh, um, to do that but yeah certainly timing is just uh it, it, it's a very complex thing to actually get to get right you know yeah absolutely yeah. and and these these this is one of those things where i think we've talked about a few different albums on on the podcast i've i i've cut my own stuff uh it was one of my dreams as a, as a kid was to have my own comedy album and so i made one when i was 19 it's not by no means nothing compared to what you did when you were 17 which is again what's again kind of blowing my mind but like learning how to do that myself, I I, I I feel like you do have certain instincts, but then the idea that, uh, my, first of all, I never had to physically cut tape. I've never had to physically cut tape. And I, I kind of actually do want to ask a little bit what it was like working on on tape, and I'm assuming <laughs> a lot of physical cutting. Well, I've got a good story there, um, or a little, uh, a little interesting story there, was uh, there was... Uh, there was um, one word that because you'd, um, you'd work pretty quick and then uh, what was pretty shit was shit so we, it basically ended up on the floor and so invariably we'd have a pile of tape about oh, two to three foot high in a, in a, a pile, pile just laying on the floor and then Terry Gilliam said to me uh, one day he said no I, th I think I preferred that word that we had at the um, on a particular sketch, I can't remember which one it was, but he said, "I think we should put that word back." And uh, I'm kind of like looking at this pile of, pile of tape, tape on the floor. Thinking, oh shit! Uh, we've got to now go through all that. I said, "Okay, fine. Well, give me a couple of hours, and I'll find it." So um, uh, Terry had a bit of a sleep at the time because we were working ridiculous hours. We were doing 12, 13, 14 hours a day. Um, so I'd, I'd be just playing through unraveling all this tape on the floor until I found the word. And, and, and in fact, I did find it fairly, fairly quickly, actually. Um, and then thereafter, um, I'd made sure that anything that we took out of any Python uh, recording uh, was put onto it. I joined it up and put it onto a reel. So we never, nothing ever ended up on the floor. It was always um, back. Uh, we'd always document the stuff, which is fine, but... Um, once we were going through it and we knew that it was rubbish, then, then it would be thrown away. But um, from then onwards, so fairly early on, um, I would keep absolutely everything. And uh, as I said, I'd join it up and put it onto, um, onto a separate reel so that we could find it a lot easier than rubbing through, trodden on, and having to iron the tape to, <laughs> to make sure it plays all right. Yeah, that's the thing is like I, I take for granted that I got to work on on digital first, and even when I went to film school, I got to cut um, uh, actual film, but I never got to cut sound. So that's one of those things that you don't really get to talk about with many people. But one thing that one my favorite thing about recording uh, my own stuff and my own comedy is doing the sound effects. I I like the job that I do, but I'm I'm not. Uh, there are a few albums that stand out in my brain as as albums that are just kind of, most of the Cheech and Chong albums, actually, even though the content is not necessarily as, 
I guess is sophisticated the word I'm looking for. I don't know, but uh, it, it's not Monty Python. But the sound quality is gorgeous, and most of the. But then the other, you know, there's them. There's Fire Sign Theater. There's uh, the Credibility Gap. There's National Lampoon. But then, uh, and this is in no particular order. But but the Python albums are they're just so uh, dense. With with sound, they're so natural sounding, uh, and just the idea of just—I mean, I know you were being colloquial, but just the idea of just sticking a microphone at the at the door and you had the sound you needed. I'm I'm just wondering, like, what went into recording the sound effects, getting them just right, making them sound uh, have the right atmosphere for the 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 recording you're already doing. Um, no, I mean, again, it, it it was a it was a natural process that you know if it sounds good, then let's use it. So um, that was a case of um, how how we how we would do things. You know, if we heard a police car going by or something, we ram a microphone out very quickly, and uh, or if we were waiting for a bit of a, a thunderstorm or whatever, you know, you'd uh, you'd you'd get prepared and then just just get ready to record it once it starts. So I always prefer to try. Um, uh, to actually do our own effects if, if if we can but of course there's so many great libraries these days um that uh, you have access to and normally now for my movies and stuff um apart from the foley stuff that i record um it's it's you know there, there's a a billion sound effects to actually access as well to enhance what you're doing uh, but in those days it, it wasn't so um it wasn't so uh, popular to have I think it was just probably the BBC was one of the first really big sound effects libraries, you know. And and Terry Gilliam always used um, the BBC stuff to to do his stuff for his animations. I'm actually curious now that you, now that you say that um, because when you say BBC and library, I immediately think of all the tapes they've tried to wipe out over the years and have succeeded in wiping <laughs> out. Um, and obviously, I mean, uh, the story's pretty famous that Terry Gilliam bought up all the tapes so that Monty Python wouldn't be lost forever do you where where are all the Monty Python uh I don't need a specific geographical location but where are all the Monty Python archives um well I've got quite a lot here because we archived a lot onto CD and, and digital um quite a while a while back now uh but they're, they're basically storage units um all around for the shows or for uh um for the films and uh, they're, they're in lockups you know they're in, in safe storage places is there is this, has there ever been an attempt to go back and look at these and find either outtakes or other things that they maybe somebody's forgot is missing or is hasn't been included on an album somehow yeah we've got um yeah we 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 on on emi released a special edition um cds and we went back into the archives uh to pull stuff out from that and uh and I was amazed at the quality of recordings that we we actually did, and they sound as pristine today as they are, um, uh, as as they are when we were, first recorded them. Quite incredible, actually. The quality is just fantastic, and uh, I even surprised myself. And you kind of think, "Oh God, do we do this? You know, <laughs> we're probably better than what we thought we were." <laughs> Have you? Uh... Actually, that's that's another thing too. Is uh, are any of the, the the newer things? I mean, I'm sure there have been some remastered issues, but so mostly what we're hearing is is original tape. Then, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much so. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one thing too. That's always kind of I think. Uh, recently, I had eh, not recently. Well, six months to a year ago, I had a guest pick uh, the soundtrack to the Holy Grail, which 
I had somehow missed, and I don't know how that's physically possible. Because I think my assumption was, well, this will be the clips that I've heard in other albums. This will be the stuff that's from the. I've seen the movie. I had no idea that it was. A, it was also a sketch album that was kind of going out of its way to make fun of the fact that they were doing an album of the soundtrack of their own movie. Yeah, we kind of we kind of came up with the idea that uh, we just didn't want to run the soundtrack and. With Python, they've always tried to give good value for money and uh, and, and and content as well. Uh, and we just thought it was a funny thing to do to actually uh, put you into a location and then uh, play along with it. I mean, I, I think that's kind of what um, that's one of my favourite albums. Actually, uh, um, I think that and and Life of Brian are both both very good um, albums to uh, to listen to, and they're they're full of um, kind of just interesting stuff. Well, and it's it's one of those things. It's a testament to them and and I, and yourself. I, I actually don't mean to actually. If I'm going to talk about the audio Monty Python, I, I would include you in the group. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Because if you're talking about you, you also have to include Neil Linus if you're talking about Monty Python music. So it, it doesn't make sense not to. Um, but that's one of those things. It's it's a uh, uh, most artists are just going to let an album happen. If it's a soundtrack to a movie, they're just going to let it go. They're not going to put their own stamp on it. But but. I, I, it feels like uh, there's this new sense of ownership if you're like, no, 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 we're going to take full control of something. Even though we always, already made a movie, we're going to make an album that is its own thing, even though it might have clips from the movie. But it's all, one of my favorite things about it, too, is it has this sense of they're kind of making fun of you for having bought the album while at the same time <laughs> there's, you know, it's a perfectly uh, beautifully put together sketch album. Yeah, no, a, a, absolutely. And as I said, it's always down to giving good value for money. I, I think Pythons were always um, um, wanting to kind of like package their stuff re really, really well. And uh, um, obviously when, when we had Matching Town Hanky with the triple uh, side album um, on, on vinyl, um, uh, have you listened to the vinyl album of that I have, I have. That was one of the things too, where, where they pointed out, uh, you know, you, you know, you need to listen to this in a certain way. I think I had it digitally first, but then I had to buy it physically when they told me what was going on, and I was like, "This is fantastic! I can't imagine somebody beating their head against a wall when they didn't get the same thing the next time." Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that idea was meant to be for Monty Python's previous album, uh, in fact, and and that's why you get uh, a now a massage from the Swedish Prime Minister three times on one side on that particular album, because each one of those tracks was meant to start with a now a massage from the Prime Minister, um, and um, that uh, unfortunately we we got to about a dozen cuts of that. Um, and uh, the grooves ran into each other as it got to the center um, of the record. So uh, in, in the end, we just cut the three things together and, and, and made one side of it. Um, I've actually got the, the last attempted cut, um, acetate still, um, bizarrely. I've kept the last one, actually, and um, it's somewhere in my uh, archive stuff. And um, we then transferred the idea onto uh, Matching Time Hanky. But it's an old, it was an old... Um, kind of idea because um, in the kind of um, broadcast of um, dramas uh, the BBC ran when they were running stuff off vinyl, they would go from outside to inside, you turn the album over and then go from inside to the outside um, so the quality wouldn't change because obviously quality changes as you go through um, an album because of the, the depths of the grooves. So mm. um, um, we kind of just elaborated on that idea so um it was it was good yeah it was a 
quite a clever thing. This is sort of a side thing, but with uh, Matching Tie and Hanky, I have heard, and this could be apocryphal, that there there was an issue of it with an actual tie and handkerchief in a box. Is that did that ever happen? Um, no, we um, no, there wasn't actually. No, it was it, it was always meant to be the way it ended up to be. Um, we we discussed the um, um, around that time. We discussed about the exploding cover, which was um, we thought would be quite good. Um, so what would happen is you take the record out, but you couldn't get it back into the sleeve because the spring would come out and burst through the cover. Um, unfortunately, uh, it was going to be about one inch thick and the shops wouldn't stock a one inch thick record at the time because it would take too much space up. So we just kind of aborted that idea. I just thought it was really funny because once you've actually got the, the record, um, you, you didn't know really what to do with it because you couldn't get it back into the sleeve. Um, and, and we also had the other one where the um, the needle would uh, just drop off at, at, at the end, so you'd have to play it from the inside out, and then at the end you'd have to be there to catch the uh, the needle of the record player <laughs> it dropped on smashing onto the floor. I mean, we had lots of little ideas like that where where, where we we never got round to doing. You know. Oh my goodness! You know, you could do that now. I mean, at least with Record Store Day over here, do they have an equivalent of Record Store Day over there at all? I don't know. No, um, no, you still, you can. I mean, vinyl was very popular, so um, you, they're, they're still doing vinyl. Yeah, and that's the other thing too is like I, I, I'm, I'm appreciative for Record Store Day, but I will, I will almost never go out and buy any of the records just because they're just too massively expensive, and they might release one comedy record a year. But it's the idea of the exploding cover. I feel like that's one of those things that's built for this resurgence of vinyl. Oh my yeah. god. Um, <laughs> sorry. No, no, go on. You carry on. Uh, Why well, I, I did want to, I was thinking about um, specifically, and I don't remember when I actually first, I, I, I there are a number of sketches uh, that I realized uh, a while ago. I heard way before I saw because I didn't have the DVDs of the actual show, so I grew up with whatever was on TV. And so there are a number of sketches that had your fingerprints on them before I ever saw uh, the, the the visual, like the cheese shop, uh, yeah. that is probably my favorite audio sketch of all time, and I, I still don't know why. I, I don't know what it is about it, but I was wondering if you could talk about maybe that one specifically, but translating uh, something that had already been on TV into an audio album. Well, we um, a lot of the sketches on the albums um, were on TV, and but we'd re-record everything. Nothing was taken off the TV recordings to put onto, uh, uh, certainly not the ones that I, I was involved in. We'd re-record absolutely everything. And in fact, I think they compare very well with the, uh, uh, with the uh, TV sketches. Um, and uh, yeah, Matching Town Hanky, that was, uh, that was very, uh, <laughs> very funny. Um, Dave Hammond and me were uh, doing our foot tapping um, kind of uh, stuff in that, and it was it, it, that, that, it was a good it was a good fun album to do. Uh, oh my goodness! I mean, there's all these other things too. Like if I want to talk about that album, there's just that 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 where where uh, the list of cheese just sort of trails off and trails off. The bazooki music just pulls up and pulls up, and then obviously the dancing, and then then he screams, and then there's just this this wonderful dead silence. And the music starts again, but very low. And I, there's just, oh my goodness, is that kind of like, 
I'm just curious what kind of thought goes into it. I mean, there there is what there was in the show, and you, you got to deal with what you have live, but you guys had time to tweak these sketches and make them maybe better than they were on the show. Yeah, I, I kind of think that, actually. Some of the stuff it, that does uh, stand up uh, in its own merit. Um, of course, uh, we only uh, we didn't have multi-track in those uh, in those. Days. Um, we, the, the most we had when we were doing uh, all that early stuff was four-track, so we'd have to keep sort of. I, I I'd had about four separate um, quarter-inch machines running with sound effects and loops on. Um, so you'd be running and pressing a button down, and then pressing another button down, pressing another button, and then you'd have to do live mixing with it as well. It was all there was no automation like like we have nowadays. So it was it was kind of a, a mammoth task um, uh, to do this. But as you said before, you, you mentioned um, how rich. Uh, the stuff sounds um, and uh, I think in a way it was just that the, the, the sheer effort that we put into actually doing this stuff um, was all worthwhile um, boy oh boy yeah. uh, and actually you know you you, you did uh, you made a comment that actually kind of uh, makes me feel even better for my understanding of these albums because we I've talked to different people where we'll listen to and they're like well I think that might have been pulled off the show and this might have been and now it's it's nice to be able to tell them no uh, it's it's all been recreated, and that's I think that's a, that's another thing too, where it's it's that's another uh, not just a production of it, but the fact that they put in a, a new performance of the sketch that adds value to the album as well. It's another reason that you paid good money to buy the album. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, every, everything was um, regenerated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you are some, at, some, at times you are hard to push uh, to tell the difference between. The TV and uh, uh, and the recordings, uh, but uh, yep, absolutely, generally everything was re re-recorded. Is there? Uh, I guess the one thing that you're not the one thing, but there are so many different things between recording, mixing, and producing music versus doing the same with comedy. But um, did you produce the uh, the musical numbers as well for the, the Python records? Yeah, yeah. Um... Yes, just about everything, I think. Um, certainly for the contractual album, yeah, we did. Uh, that was all done. Um, Life of Brian, um, uh, Terry had asked, Terry Gilliam had asked, said he was doing this animation title sequence, and, and he'd asked me if um, we could do some music for it. So, uh, again, Dave Hammond and me, we, uh, we came up with uh, doing the Life of Brian song. So we wrote that, and uh, Mike had written the, and Terry Jones had written the lyrics for it. And they wanted a sort of a Bond-esque feel to it. And um, um, I was working with a trumpet player at the time called John Dupre, so, um, who obviously went on to... He's working with Eric quite a lot. And um, um, John was just a musical genius, really, because um, you know, he'd actually score stuff out. Um, even in his head, he could just write music notation out. Brilliant. But at the time... Um, uh, I got him to do all the brass uh, stuff, and uh, it was fantastic because um, it was a good opportunity, and we uh, we ended up um, writing the title music uh, for Life of Brian, and uh, Terry absolutely loved it. And in fact, we had to cut a whole verse out um, because um, he'd actually cut the animation down and uh, a little bit, uh, so we cut a verse out and. Um, Terry said, oh, we've got to cut this verse out. And I said, yeah, but we uh, at this time we were on 8-track. And uh, I said, yeah, but we've only got um, this multi-track, this one-inch 8-track. And um, he said, well, um, just, just, just 
cut it, just cut the tape. I said, but Terry, there's no other copy of it. Um, <laughs> he said, no, 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 he said, I trust you, Andre. He said, you know, you're good at what you do. Just cut, 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 cut it. And I went, be on your own head, Terry. Anyway, so we, we cut this verse out. Thank God. And thank God it worked out okay. And, and, and it was seamless. So, uh, in fact, there, there, there's, uh, there's a whole verse missing from that somewhere, somewhere in the archive. And I can't even remember what lyrics they were on it. But um, anyway, so we ended up doing that. And then the same with um, Every Sperm is Sacred. Um, um, Terry Jones had asked um, Dave Hammond and myself to actually do that, uh, to, to write a, a track. And um, we put that one together. And um, that, again, was done on, on, on 8-track. I think we ended up with about 50 overdubs all on 8-track. We had to keep bouncing down to get all the instruments wow. done. <laughs> Yeah, it was all done on A-Track, quite, quite phenomenal, really. Uh, but most of the contractual album was all done on A-Track, yeah. You've just named two of my favorite Monty Python songs, so I had absolutely no idea there was, that your hands were so heavily involved in, in two, of the, two of the most, again, two of the densest uh, songs as well in terms of just... Not just you're replicating a sound for comedy, but uh, you know a, a musical sound for comedy. But it's also there's just so much, there's so many layers to it that you you can tell specifically for for every sperm is sacred, which has just got there's so much going on there. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Uh, we put the basically we recorded um, the um, piano, bass, and drums was our first pass at it. So we had a sort of a, a basic guide for that. But again, doing it on 8-track, it was quite complex because we had to get the balances right at the time, as you can imagine, because we'd, we'd have to have all the other elements in and all the vocals, you know, so we'd kept on interbouncing down between the tracks to actually make that work. But it worked out okay. It was fine, and uh, it, was, it was quite a fun number to, uh, to actually do. Did you work Did you... on uh, any of the live albums? Yes, I did, yeah. Um, Drury Lane, we had, um, uh, again, I used Alan Bailey. He was in the truck recording. We, we had the Rolling Stones um, mobile at the time, and um, uh, Alan was in there, and then I was doing the live show. Um, I was out front of house doing uh, the sounds from that and firing on all the effects. Again, that, that that's quite hair-raising as well because... Um, um, Everything was on tape, as you can imagine, and, and occasionally uh, we, we'd have to, um, we'd have to, um, the, the tape would split uh, where, where the joins were, would come off, the sticky would just come off. So there you are, you're threading this tape through, playing this intro music and stuff, but, and just feeding it through with your hands. Um, and, and then in between, the sketch, while the sketch was going on, you're quickly, busily rewinding the, 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 the stuff off the floor again and then actually joining it up, ready for the next cue to come in. It was, it was quite manic. Oh, my God. The oh my idea God. That we, we think that, uh, and I'm uh, not to discredit anybody nowadays who does live sound for anything, but that, like, there's no doubt that what you were doing was a performance. Like, that is, that is just, that, uh, that is... I don't like to use the word epic for anything, but it just this the the amount of stress I can feel just hearing that story is just like uh, you deserve just all the 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 applause and praise for for pulling that together live. My God. Yeah, yeah, no, oh, yeah, because there's a lot of music <clears throat> intros and uh, lots of uh, sound effects to be played in, and again, you you didn't have any samplers or anything in those days, and you had to do it all off tape. So that was quite that was quite yeah, it was quite um, an interesting time 
Because at the time, the only solid state thing you would have had would have been like a crappy synthesizer, right? Yeah, kind of, yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, well, actually, you know what? Uh, has have there been since since sort of the digital revolution? Have there there have been compilations? But how can we talk about any sort of the latter day Python stuff that might have been put together? Um, <coughs> well, for the um, what well, really. Um, Apart from regenerating things on digital for, for re-releases, um, the uh, I, I think the live show, uh, uh, the O2 show that we did uh, last year, the 2014, uh, was um, we had to re well, record new new tracks for that, and so that was all done uh, digital. But principally, I think um, most of it has all been it's, it's, it's all been on. Uh, Analog, really, off tape. I mean, I, I worked on the um, Elias autobiography, the Graham Chapman movie. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Graham Chapman. Um, again, that was all digital, and uh, and uh, the boys came in to, to work on that as well, um, and that worked out really uh, very well. Uh, so that's that's probably the the latest stuff um, that we were doing. I mean, I have suggested to um, uh, to Mike and and to John actually. Uh, that it would be nice maybe to come in to do album to do a new album. I mean they 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 like that med medium because the when you're doing filming or TV work it takes so long. You have lighting, you have sound to deal with, you have cameras to deal with. Uh, with audio, they just come in, record their stuff, go away. I put it together, and then um, uh, they come in, have a listen to it, and then it's all done. So so it, it's very simple. Uh, I have spoken. To the, to them about perhaps doing some some stuff um we'll just have to wait and see watch this space <laughs> well that's one of those things too where it's, it, it's so funny is I, I i i know over the years uh, you know i like i think a lot of people i discovered monty python and got interested in them in you know early sort of my early teens and then eventually i get to my late teens and there uh, there was that um i don't know who originally produced it but there was there was a i think it was called life of python um and i think that was a bbc job yeah yeah and that, that's right okay so I, I don't remember who released it over here they always confuse things by taking the original logos off but uh yeah it's great people should watch that actually it's fantastic it's hosted by eddie Izzard. it's fantastic um oh. but it's great if you uh, you know when you listen to them saying well i don't i don't know if we'll ever get together a bunch of old farts on their in wheelchairs you know trying to do comedy which i think it's I, I i wish i had gotten to see them performing again last year because like they still they still pull it together they're still doing they're still making new creative stuff together i i love the idea that they're kind of rediscovering the fact oh no we will probably always work well together yeah totally i mean they get on very you know they, they got they get on unbelievably well together um and i think until the, really the O2 show, I don't think they really realised how successful they were. I mean, we we did the George Harrison concert um, at the Albert Hall um, uh, memorial concert, and uh, we opened the, uh, uh, the the second half with them. And uh, it, again, it was um, they, they were saying, "Oh, I hope we, you know, I hope, I hope we go down well," because all the, all the other acts were musical and. They were the only comedy act that was on there, and uh, and I said to I, I, I said to Mike, I said oh, I shouldn't, you know, don't worry. I mean, you know, you're you're very well much loved and stuff. Anyway, it, it went down an absolute storm. And actually, there's an interesting thing you're talking about digital, and um, I was doing their 
front of house sound for that. And um, uh, I'd had some music cues to feed in. Um, and what I did was, after the first half, we were opening the second half. And uh, they were changing slightly the uh, the way we were going to do the intro. So I'd lined up my CD, ready to play the music in, for, uh, to fire it off uh, for when Mike comes on stage. Uh, so I had all that lined up. We went back to the um, dressing room. Then we were rehearsing uh, a couple of run-throughs um, on look at, uh, Sit On My Face, because uh, that, that's the number that they were going to be opening with. Um, so, th so that was good. And then... Um, we went, uh, oh, then they said, oh, we're just changing the order slightly. You'll get an announcement now that the stage will be black and then they'll, 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 they'll walk on. So, um, I then went back to the sound, um, uh, sound booth and then, um, well, it wasn't a booth. It was, it was just in the theater. And I kind of looked down at the CD player and it said error on the CD. I went, oh shit. Oh. I said, um. When we go, so I, I quickly thought I'll put the spare CD in because I always have a, a backup. And I thought, oh god, it's in the dressing room, <laughs> which was about <laughs> two minutes away. And then uh, so I hit eject, and then the lights started to go down. And there I am holding the CD in my hand, looking at it, thinking, why? Why is there an error on it? And uh, this was the backing track for "Sit on My Face" uh, in my hand as the lights were going down. And then the announcement came in, so I, I put the CD back into the tray. And I just slammed the CD uh, shut and then hit play straight away. And perfect, I, I tell you, God must have been with us uh, on that particular day because um, right on cue, um, the lights went on and then the track started perfectly um, on <clears> cue. <throat> God, I tell you, and after that, my hand was like shaking like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and I, I actually had to have my other hand holding my hand over the... Um, pause and play button to do all the other music cues to make sure that nothing was going to go wrong. So, so things can go wrong even on digital. You know, it was good. Anyway, we, after we did our little set and stuff, um, uh, we were walking back. I went backstage and we were walking back to the dressing room. Mike said, "Mike, Mike said to me, he said Andre he said your cue was impeccable." And I said, "You should have been out there, Mike. You don't know what the hell was going on." I said, "It was frightening, absolutely frightening. It was just like." Uh, this horrendous story, and I, and even to this day, I kind of think, oh my god! Supposing the lights come on, they're ready to sing, and there was no backing track to play them, it, it would have been so embarrassing, you know. But anyway, so things can go wrong with digital. Oh my god! Uh, I, I I also like too that the you're you know you are the go-to guy. You put the music together. You're also well, you know, he's the guy who really ought to be who ought to be timing us on the stage with with the music, and that's uh, that's uh, I mean. I, I, it's, it's, it must be good to be used to having them trust you, but like, it's, 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 it's fantastic to, to know that they, that, you know, the, besides the core guys, uh, that there's always been this other guy out after that first album, that, that first fully produced album, this one, one person who's been pulling these together. Have you actually been, have you worked on any of the side projects like, uh, Rutland Weekend Television or the Ruttles or anything like that? Hey. Uh, yeah, yeah. Initially, I was um, I was helping out with uh, Rutland uh, Rutland Weekend, and we did some radio um, uh, for BBC Radio uh, Five stuff. We did uh, we did that. Um, Mike's Ripping Yarns. Um, I'd worked on um, three of those. Actually, we did sort of um, incidental music and things for Mike on that one. Um, 
and um, Holy Grail was re-released um, because initially Holy Grail was only out in mono, so we, we uh, re-digitized that. And uh, I ended up with three um, optical tracks, which was a dialogue, which was mono, music, that was mono, and sound effects, that was mono. And so we had to do it in surround sound. So I had to kind of like rip the whole lot apart, reorganize, get all the music again, what I could find, and then and, and redub the whole thing. So, um, yeah, I do, I, I, I do work on the other side projects that they do do, yeah. Not absolutely everything. Um, I've got a, I think they're... they're process is that um, they want me to remain competitive really and, and top of my game <laughs> <laughs> um, are there other uh, are there other comedy projects that you've worked on that I might be familiar with even if I haven't I'm, I'm just curious as to the other comedy stuff you've done because I know you do a lot of music but obviously I'm so interested in, in the comedy you do yeah um, yeah Barry Humphreys I did uh, I can't remember what album that was called it was a Barry Humphreys album um, I did um, and that was that was fun I actually did that at home actually um, it was a live concert that he did in London was it the Apollo or one of those uh, um, Barry Humphreys live so um, I think that was one of his first albums um, so I did that um, and uh, what else was there um, there's a few sort of comedy um people that i have worked with um over the over the years yeah quite a few i can't remember them all at, at the moment i have to have a look at my archive <laughs> to sure. see what sure. see what i've come up with but yeah yeah i have i i have worked with quite a lot of the comedy people yeah is there because what we normally do at the end of an episode obviously normally you know i i sit and usually i'm the one jabbering on for half an hour to an hour about you know, an album that the guest likes and I'm interrupting them, but occasionally somebody like you will come on and you'll be telling me stories that I'm, I just, I, I finally shut up. But, um, is there an album? Is there one Python album that you go back to, or maybe that you've even re-listened to yourself and like to re-listen to, or one that you point to as, well, this is, this is the one to listen to if you want to start listening to good audio comedy by Monty Python. I think I think you'll have to wait for the next new Python album if we ever do one. <laughs> um, is there is there one? No, I think I think we spoke about it earlier, and 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 I I think um, I think the um, Holy Grail or or the Life of Brian soundtrack albums. I just think they're just really hilarious um, if you listen to them. As they have a bit of kind of like. I don't know. There's, a, a, there's some sort of a tr attraction listening to a soundtrack album that isn't quite a soundtrack album, isn't there? I think there's there's something quite good. I think that 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 will give you a good introduction to listen to the other stuff, you know. I think that's perfect, actually, because it's it's one of those things where you feel like you're familiar with a, something, especially Holy Grail. It, it, over here, I feel like that's the thing people get introduced to first because PBS, I, they might still play the shows, but you can get the shows online if, if you want to. You should pay for them, people, by the way, if you're going to watch them. But, uh, you know, I think people are exposed to the movie first, and this assumption that you're going to be familiar with all the stuff on the album is great because it's immediately shut down. And, yeah. You know? Yeah. No, no, I, I completely agree. I think, I think, um, I think cert certainly good starting points uh, uh, for people for that. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for doing this, and I would absolutely love to have you on again. And frankly, I hope the next time I'm in London to interview you. Um, <laughs> is there anything that you would like to plug or promote? Um, no, I don't think so. No, no, no. I could do with some. Uh, 
lottery numbers. That would be quite a good, <laughs> good idea of that. But no, no, I'm, I'm, I think, um, all right, I'm working on a comic strip episode at the moment. Um, we're doing that, which was quite, uh, or is quite, uh, quite a lot of fun. Oh, that's so amazing. Have you worked with them for a while? I have, yeah. I've done quite a few uh, uh, things with Peter Richardson for that, yeah. Yeah, he's a bit of a genius himself. It's, in fact, I, I think Peter's a bit like all the Pythons all put into one person, so that's how complex he is to work with. <laughs> did you ever, did you work on, did you, were you in any way involved in bad news? And I only ask because we talked about that the other day. Yeah, no, uh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't. I mean, I know that was mostly Brian May, but I thought I'd ask just because it's somebody just exposed me to it, and I was kind of upset that I'd never heard of it. I that's why I like this show, you know. I, yeah. I, um, well, uh, well, they can they can go to redwoodstudios.co.uk to look look up more about your your studio, correct? Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, Mike uh, Palin and um, I were still partners, so uh, we're, we're um, not sexual partners. Just... <laughs> business partners um and uh yeah we we, we have a, a humble little studio up in soho um and uh yeah we uh we have a lot of fun i'm actually seeing quite a bit of mike at the moment because we're doing um he's doing the um a little animation series called the clangers which i believe william shatner is doing the voice in the states for it and um and for the uk version mike's doing uh Mike's doing that over here, so uh, I'm seeing quite a lot of Mike at the moment. Wow! Wow! Right. The idea of Michael Payne playing the same part that William Shatner's playing is yeah. really funny to me. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's fantastic. But a uh, good combination. Um, well, Andre, thank you so much for doing this. That's no problem at all. Um, good luck with it, and uh, I hope we didn't bore people too much. No, 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 no. Are you kidding? You the the, the amount of times that I. Uh, that you saw that you would have seen me biting my own fist as to how excited I was to this new information was uh, yeah it's innumerable but um, thank you guys for listening as well and as always have a good thing Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com.